Welcome to Grow My Business or Sell It, the podcast that helps entrepreneurs in three ways. How to grow your business in the most cost-effective way, how to sell it for as much money as possible, and how to invest the proceeds of all that hard work. Whichever stage you're at, listen up, because I guarantee you'll take something valuable from every episode. Welcome back. My guest today forged a reputation for growing organizations through acquisition during the dot-com boom and has gone on to become one of the UK's most prolific aggregators of small businesses. Previously chairman of the prestigious global brand Who's Who Publications, he's the CEO of asset provider WestOne, and he's invested in a range of businesses over the last two decades, including everything from audiovisual to hospitality, digital printing, distribution, publishing, recycling, and commercial property. He also founded Wise Leasing, which became one of the UK's biggest IT leasing companies with 50 million of lease transactions every year. He knows how to acquire and build businesses by finding synergies, analyzing competitors, uncovering true value, building networks, and accelerating organic growth through acquisition. So it sounds like he's on the right podcast then. Jeremy Hall, welcome to the show. Uh, good afternoon, Graham, and, and thank you very much indeed for being on your show this afternoon. Well, I'll tell you what, obviously you've done an awful lot in, in recent years, uh, Jeremy, but just to give us a bit of context, can you just give me kind of a three-minute version of your career before West One so we understand kind of the background and where you came from? That's very kind, uh, Graham. Well, Graham, when I was 24 years old, I set up a leasing company called Wise Leasing. And our focus was on um, IT uh, and, and software leasing. And over the years, um, we had a fantastic time. It was a really, really good, enjoyable experience. And we grew that over the next 15 years to a business that had seven regional offices. Um, I think at the time we did around about 65 million uh, turnover. Um, and it was a very profitable company, <clears throat> one that had a great reputation, and it was a very, very important, successful, enjoyable part of my life. Um, we then actually sold it, uh, Graham, <clears throat> and that part of the sale was actually completed in 2006 and another part in 2009. Um, and obviously then that, so that's given me a bit of the understanding of what it's like to actually sell an organisation. And, and since then, we've actually gone on to buy another, a number of other leasing companies and a number of other leasing portfolios. Um, interestingly, I am probably a, an individual that gets a bit bored. So I have invested in a whole range of other things that you, you mentioned earlier. Um, I think, Graham, if we're honest, a, a lot of that is a fantastic ego trip. And if you said, well, has it made me a lot of money? I'll probably say, well, not, not necessarily. But it's given me some very, very important lessons in life and also in, in a running a business. So mistakes have been made. Um, but also, there's been a lot of really positive things that have come back um, from those other investments we've actually made. So today, here I am many years later, married with three children. Um, I am running a much smaller organisation um, than, than I have historically, but it doesn't mean to say that we don't have uh, views and ideas of, of growing what we've got and developing. And, and ultimately, uh, as I get older, the exit strategy conversation is, uh, you know, and, and the financial engineering around how we go about doing the exit uh, is, is becoming a lot more important to us. Okay, well, let's just wind the clock back a bit, because I think people are always fascinated with how 
you kind of bootstrap a business, how you start growing it, how much is organic, how much is acquisition. So if you go back to the early stages of, of, of say, uh, wise leasing, um, was that a complete startup when you began? Yes, it was, Graham. It was myself in a, a 200 square feet office with uh, an old knock, I think it's uh, an NEC 9A tax mobile phones, which is one of those big brick telephones. Uh, we had things like fax machines in those days and um, an old an old computer. And, and off, I want, uh, off I went. And that was uh, pretty much just get on the road, go and meet people, develop a network, develop relationships. And over time, we just grew and grew by recruiting more staff. But then the really big growth started to come um, about six years later when we put we started building regional offices. And rightly or wrongly, Graham, the model that we used was to actually, uh, when we took on board, uh, set up an office, we, it was really important we got a good champion in there. And that individual had to be a shareholding director of the business. Now, a lot of people that you're going to speak to will disagree with this model. Um, a lot of people will actually agree with the, the franchise type model. But for us, it worked really well. It allowed us very quickly to put offices in Taunton. Um, uh, the Sunbridge Wells was an acquisition, but we had offices in Northampton, Chesham, Daventry, Edinburgh, uh, Dublin, and also Sheffield. And by this, then, it, it takes a uh, on its own sort of existence uh, because each office is then expanding at quite a rate. So it's not just me and my one office. It was me and, you know, now a team of seven directors. And what I thought worked out, Graham, um, was actually a lot of these people were much better than I, I was at selling or running a business or developing a business. So one of the first lessons I learned that it's really, really important to get, get an A team around you and start building on real talent and if I'm honest, a lot of the success of growing and developing Wise Leasing was actually not down to me. It was down to a couple of other key individuals who I've known for many, many years who, who helped the creation of it. So, so uh, I'm fascinated that you, you, know, you talk about the importance of regional offices. You know, we live today in this online world where everyone thinks they can do everything from a single central location. What, what, what were the benefits of actually having a physical presence in different parts of the country? Well, I, th I think that when we started, um, we, uh, e email wasn't the main main communication tool, and, and certainly websites didn't exist. Uh, so having a regional presence where we could build regional relationships with people, you know, being within a two-hour drive of a potential supplier of uh, computer equipment or a customer who's looking to lease that equipment was very, very important. And it was also a big sales benefit. So in our industry, the um, there's not that many USPs. We have we work with a very generic products, um, and and most of us are fishing in. What we call in the industry we're fishing in the same pond. You know we don't have many things in our business that makes us stand out. So for us, um, having a, a regional presence was something we could sell to the local suppliers we worked with and local customers as an edge over our competition. I think you're right though, Graham. I think now that the world is is totally different. So the um, the idea of having regional offices in a leasing company is just not as important as it used to be. Okay, but did, I, I guess what you did bring in through that model was some very talented people who were located all around the country who perhaps wouldn't have been so easy to pull into a central team. So um, there were benefits. And it's interesting that they became shareholders. So um, 
I guess obviously the franchise model is somewhat different. There is an element of commitment there because you're buying the, the territory. But with this, I, I, I guess they bought into the bigger picture of what you were building nationally. Absolutely, absolutely. For, I think actually it, it, in, you could argue that they had it quite easy because they were buying into an existing brand. They were buying into existing procedures, systems, <clears throat> you know, relationships with uh, with funders and partners, uh, you know, customers, etc. So what we were able to do is take somebody that had not been in the leasing industry and very, very quickly get them up and running to be a successful individual. And I suppose that's one of the, you know, I'm not a franchise expert, but that's, I suppose, is what, you know, part of franchising is all about is about buying into an existing model. We actually still do this a bit now, Graham, but maybe a little bit different differently. So as an example, uh, a, a colleague of mine who used to work for me and then left us has now come back. And we set up like a, a micro brand called Scaffold Finance, which does us scaffold, uh, financing in the scaffolding industry. So we are using some of the same ideas and tools that we used many years ago, but it's a little bit different um, as, as to what we used to do. Okay, so so just staying on the, on the story of, of, of Wise, um, did there come a point where you felt you'd, you'd grown as much as you needed to grow geographically? And at what point did you start thinking that maybe there was scope for a, an exit from the business? Now, that's a very good question, because here lies one of the key challenges. Um, if you actually ask the question, of why did we look to sell? Uh, and that was because there were four key sh- shareholders in the business. Uh, one of my colleagues um, who is in his early 40s wanted to put his children through to private school. Uh, so he wanted to have a, a big you know, a payout of cash. One of my other colleagues wanted to retire. Uh, one of my other colleagues was quite chilled out about it. And and so the four the four key shareholders got together and, and said, look, this is the right decision to make. So if I go back in time, uh, if I'm honest, selling the business, actually, I don't think necessarily was the right decision. Um, I would actually probably still prefer to have the brand uh, and, and, and to be part of the original company. But at the time, it was the right decision to make. Uh, we sold the, the first business back in 2006. It was just before the um, the recession hit. Um, and if I'm honest as well, would we have actually survived through that recession with the, the overhead structure we had and the regional offices? And I think that could have been quite debatable, Graham. So the fact we actually sold in 2006 was it, it did ultimately, it was ultimately the right decision. Okay, so you've decided that selling is the right thing to do. Um, How do you decide who's going to be involved in that process? What's going to be a fair valuation, et cetera? What what was the actual process you went through from that decision to the point where you actually had a deal across the line? Well, that's a a good good question, uh, um, Graham. One of the first things we did, Graham, is we actually recruited the services of a third-party corporate finance company. And it's interesting because I totally dismissed this idea. I did not like the idea of getting a third party advisor in. And the reason being is because it's actually it can be quite expensive. So in, in a what was a multi-million pound deal, we actually ended up paying hundreds of thousands of pounds to a, a, um, a company uh, in, in fees. Now, what I'd like to say, though, Graham, is with hindsight, that was absolutely the correct decision to make. And the reason being is because even though we paid out a few hundred thousand pound plus in fees to one corporate advisor, and I'm just for the sake of uh, clarity, I'm not making reference to the legal fees and the accountancy fees that are actually on top of that. 
that financial, um, the corporate finance advisor actually got a significantly higher sale price for us. So one of the first things I would look at is if you are looking to exit the business and if you are looking at realistically uh, a multi-million pound sale not even in the tens of millions but you know you know enough over a million pounds as an example employing the services of a corporate finance um, provider may be a, a sensible solution and off the back of that that particular individual then helped us with a number of acquisitions over a number of years and and also other sales of businesses we've been involved in and, and we've turned out to be very very good friends after so, so what, what did he do to add so much value to the the deal that you actually achieved with the sale uh, the, fir- the first thing that he did was to look at the market and work out who out there would be potentially interested in buying the company. Um, he then made sure that we packaged everything correctly. So um, when you come to sell a business, and we can talk about this a little bit later, but you've got to package the business correctly and you've got to make it look amazing. Um, and that takes a lot of time and a lot of energy to actually do that. So he helped us in the packaging of it, making sure that we were – that all the, 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 the paperwork that was needed was actually in place. He guided us through the process. But also, probably the most important thing, if you say, well, how did he particularly get extra value? It was by going back to the um, the people who he was sort of, a, a sort of the middleman so that I didn't have to actually speak to the potential acquisition companies. He was doing it. And he could honestly use language like, well, there are a number of people that are interested, a number of interested parties, or, or no, my client is not. It doesn't like that idea. Or, or yes, my client is would be happy to move ahead on these on these um, basis. Whereas, if I specifically was being asked those questions, you, you know, you you can't really lie in these situations. And you don't want to mislead people. Um, I think that would have meant we'd have much, you know, got a lower value for the for the for the business. Yeah, and of course, I guess the other thing you buy into with these things is their network of contacts, and and sometimes you mentioned he's a finance guy. They can actually help to structure the deal for the buyer in a way that makes a higher price affordable. Yeah, and it's funny you should say that, Graham, because it was one of his contacts that we sold the company to, and we would have never have known of this individual. Um, because the individual was actually a private investor who used his own personal funding and bank funding for the acquisition. Um, whereas w- w- uh, being in the leasing industry, I would have only thought one dimensional, which is other leasing funders we could have gone to. Um, he brought a brand new um, you know, idea to the frame. Yeah, indeed. It's fascinating. Um, so you mentioned it was, I think, a multi-step deal. Did you have to stay with the business for some kind of earnout? Um uh this is in this specific situation no um there was one of the things we did over time was ensure that there was a good management team in there so there were two key direct sorry two key director shareholders in this business myself and my colleague both exited at the, the business totally at the time of sale but that was only achievable because the the two of us have done a good job over the previous few years making sure that we were uh, su- significantly away from the day-to-day operations of the business. And that's one thing um, 
that I would recommend to people if you are thinking about sale in the next few years and you want to exit the business, it is absolutely important to put yourself in a, a position where that business can run without you. If not, you will be tied in for a number of years, which is a, f- you know, it's a, it's a fair enough point because why would somebody want to acquire the business if, if you're not there and you're going to you know take the customers are going to go? That's interesting. All of us kind of entrepreneurs, you know, suffer this shiny new object syndrome. So, You've come out of that business. You've got a nice check sitting in the bank. So what did you do next? (laughs) So now there lies a fantastic question, Graham. So we completed the sale at 20 past nine on a Friday evening, and we went to a bar to have a few drinks. And um, this is such an important question because I was a very young chairman of a respected and well-known leasing company. I'm not not a well-known business throughout the a business person throughout the country, but in the field that I was in, leasing asset finance, well-known uh, and well-respected. And I will summarise this up quite nicely for you, Graham. So on that Friday, I could have made ten phone calls, and I would have received ten phone calls back. But on Monday morning, and and when I went uh, for a meal on the Saturday evening, uh, I would be the chairman of a of a, a UK based leasing company. On the Monday morning, you are Billy No Mates, and it was really quite interesting that I would make ten phone calls and only get two left, and all of a sudden you become the former chairman of a company or the former CEO. And I found that really tough to deal with, Graham. Um, and it wasn't because people were being rude or offensive to me or they didn't like me. It's very simply that they had no need for my personal services anymore. Um, so that's one thing that you've really got to be careful about when selling a business is what do you do? And also the, the change in your reputation and, and how you're viewed out there in the market. So in answer to your question, um, I made a fatal error. Uh, I made a fatal error, and that was we sh- we sold the business on uh, Friday evening, and Monday morning I went back into another office with my with my new company's hat on. Uh, for the record, you have to disclose this what you're doing. Uh, I had some very heavyweight restrictive covenants for a period of five years as to what I could do and what I could not do. So, as an example, Graham. Um, my field of expertise was IT and software leasing, and I was only allowed to be in the world of IT and software leasing up to a very small amount of profit per year. But that did not restrict me from moving into the leasing of other equipment and other assets. So when you look at 2006, when we sold the business, that was also the year I acquired another company called Power Leasing. Power Leasing's background was in um waste equipment it was in scientific equipment it was in a range of other assets so my restricted covenants uh, didn't cover that so by then of course i'm glad you brought the subject up with power leasing because uh, that company i think was established in 1976 so it was already 30 years old when you acquired it um and and i, I imagine there's a somewhat different dynamic the previous business you'd started from scratch you'd built it up you got this great team around you and then you'd sold it now suddenly and, and, and then you've also had that sort of Johnny Nomates experience. Now you walk in as the new owner of a 30-year-old established business. So tell me about the kind of dynamics with the team that was already there and how, how you coped with that. Well, that, that's an interesting one because that business was set up um, by a gentleman and he's, his son-in-law was the CEO. So the gentleman who set the business up was looking to retire 
he was a shareholder, but not a working director. His son-in-law was the managing director. And very sadly, the son-in-law was splitting up with, with the, the owner's daughter. So they actually had no real choice other than to sell the business. So if you said to me, why was the business up for sale? It was because of a, of a, a marital breakup. Um, and if you then said, well, how did I find out about the business being up for sale? It's just because... Over the years, I have kept, uh, I've done a, a good job of knowing who the competition are and, and making sure I speak to them on a regular basis, not in an, in an offensive or aggressive way, but in a plight, just keeping contact with them. So then what I was really left with, because the business had been wound down over a number of years, um, realistically, the key asset we actually had was the customer base. And, and the supplier base, you know, the companies that are selling the the waste equipment or the scientific equipment. Hmm. Um, the people have mostly left the company. So realistically, it was, let's start from scratch, but at least I've got some a story to tell. Uh, and that was a very, very useful thing in, in, in the new business. I mean, clearly, I can say this is what I used to do at Wise Leasing. But here was a new story I could come out with that was, you know, it was completely true and, and interesting about how we've acquired this business. But um, one of the key errors I made here, and I, I being a, 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 a you know business person, it's very important to focus on the good things that happen and the positive things as opposed to focus on the things that went wrong. But I did let my ego uh, get the better of me here, Graham. So here we have a brand called Power Leasing that's been around since 1976. And meanwhile, I've set up another new brand called Software Leasing, and I I, I, in effect, terminated the name Power Leasing and kept my personal brands. I let my ego get in the way. With hindsight, what I should have done, Graham, is I should have said, this is a brand that's been around 30 years. It's a much stronger brand, a much better known brand, and, and change brands to the Power Leasing brands. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it's uh, uh, you know, an important point. We all you know, get egos. And I suppose, to be fair, you'd had success at quite an early age. You'd built and sold a business. Um, you probably think, you know, you can walk on water and do no wrong. So um, if I, I have a book on my bookshelf called uh, 20 Million and Broke. And it's an American guy writing about the number of entrepreneurs that sell their business for multi seven figures uh, and end up broke because their ego gets in the way and they either do, you know, what lottery really? winners do or whatever. So it is a it's actually quite a dangerous time when you've had that successful sale, isn't it? Yes. And I've seen that personally so many times. It's very easy. It's very hard to make the money over a prolonged period of time. It's very easy to sell it over, sorry, spend it, I should say, over a very short period of time. Yeah. So so obviously that was one mistake you did make. But then you, you, you started building the business, I guess, into new areas. I mean, were, were there any challenges going into areas of leasing that you hadn't been covering in the previous business? There, there, there were um, there were quite a range of challenges. Uh, one simple challenge is that in our sector, there's there's different suppliers or different funders that deal with the different types of assets. So we had to find a, a new range of, of banks to work with. Uh, we then have to understand the market. So when when you're in the software market and you understand all the different key software suppliers, you can talk fluently about their competition. When you're moving into a market selling scientific equipment or the, the leasing of scientific equipment, as an example, you've got to actually start learning about the other suppliers in the sector pretty quickly. So that there were challenges. I think the key challenge was that 
historically at Wise Lease, and we built relationships over many, many years. And all of a sudden, these relationships were gone. And it takes time to build a relationship. You have to build the trust. Uh, they need to know that you're reliable and dependent uh, and, and honest. Uh, and that doesn't happen overnight. So it did take time to actually start building that. Yeah. So, so, so you've had the whole experience of building one leasing business. You now start a new one. Well, you kind of buy one, but you're effectively taking it from almost from scratch in, in that sense, albeit with a customer base. Um, so what did you do differently second time around? Oh, that's a good question. That's a good question. Um, do you know what, Graham? I, I don't think I did a huge amount differently to what I did the first time around. Um, we we historically have always been a sales-based organization. And what I'm making reference to is that we'd employ salespeople to knock on deal, uh, knock on doors to go and meet clients uh, and to build the, the brand and, and to do the selling. Now that's quite different, Graham. Now that the the in terms of developing the brand and developing what we do, we have a major marketing focus. In effect, our website is like the office we have on every single high street throughout the United Kingdom. So. Uh, I w- uh, a lot of our focus, we have two people in marketing here that are, that are on the brand development and on the, on the website development, but clearly that came a number of years later. In answer to your question, what do we do exactly differently, was it wasn't a great deal. We kept the model, the actual model and the, and the, the way of selling pretty much the same. Um, it was just, it was a lot harder to, to set up from new than, it, than I expected, um, and it took a lot longer than I was expecting to to get to you know what would be a respectable level of business, and then Graham, we have to remember that was two that was November two thousand and six when we sold Wise Leasing, mm-hmm. um, and bear in mind um, what I ha- <clears throat> probably haven't mentioned is that the major part of Wise Leasing was still exist existence, so that brand was still around, and I sold that part of the business with my colleagues in in two thousand and nine to a to a German bank. Um, but come uh, two years later, the recession then hit. And I remember that month in October extremely well when we had 52 prospects on the go on the 1st of October. By the end of October, uh, I think it's 2008, we were left with one prospect and our business was pretty much obliterated overnight. Yeah, and, and people people forget, you know, that, that, that what really happened was, you, you know, some you know, Sainsbury's have got tins of beans on the shelf. In your kind of company, you've got money on the shelf, and suddenly there's no money supply available. Uh, you've got nothing on the shelf. <laughs> yeah, so well, that's it. Now, I one of one of the things that you and I spoke about in the past is challenges faced. You know, we're in a business here with many suppliers of money uh, and during that uh, four-week period it, it just dried up and, and just funders just pulled out of the market and without having funders that, that lend the money in our in our world uh, um, then, then we have no business we have no product to sell and that was very very worrying with the young family um i mean you know i I was quite fortunate because you have reserves in place from um what's you know historically selling a company um but you still want, you don't want to dip into that. You want to carry on the growth and build something. Yeah, that's right. And it was the same, I think, for mortgage brokers. Anyone that was in, this, in the business of supplying money just found that their, their, the taps had been turned off. So, so as you come out the other end of that, um, you know, what, what was it that kind of brought light to the end of the tunnel? And at what point did you actually start to see some growth coming back into the market? I think the, I think the growth actually started to come from, <clears throat> from, from more acquisitions that – because the effects of that 
recession was so vicious in our sector, lots of people just gave up and, and lots of people were desperate to sell their companies. So um, the person will remain nameless, but there was uh, an individual who bought, bought his, I didn't buy the company, I just bought the customer base. And we, we handed the check over to him. We left the building with all the files and, to, and I was waiting to, to get into the, the car. Uh, and two minutes later, he comes running around the corner with the check and he said to me, I hope the check's not going to bounce. Anyway, a couple of years later, he came back to me and he was honest enough to say that if it wasn't for us buying his customer base, his company would have actually gone out of business. So that recession uh, gave us a range of opportunities to go and acquire other small you know, customer bases and in certain situations, companies, which meant that we could then start the growth and and. When you're in a business where you might say we might organically take on, for, as an example, 100 new customers a month, if you can do an acquisition where there's 1,000 customers or 1,200 customers, you can pretty do a year's worth of your customer growth um, you know, in the, in the period of one month. So that's how we started to move out of the business. But also it was about being positive and keeping focused and just keep doing the day job, keep knocking it, putting another brick in the wall. And... Um, and even though it's tough and even though we weren't earning as much money, we still put our, shined our shoes, put our shirts on, went to work, you know, made the phone calls, kept in contact with people and kept doing the basics. Uh, and over time, it doesn't matter if it's called a recession, whether it's called Brexit, whether it's called COVID or whether it's a war in Ukraine, that I think is what a lot of business is about. It's when things are tough, just keep, you know, don't focus on building the wall, focus on putting a brick in the wall and let the wall build over its time. True, but also what you're saying there is equally true that it's at times like that that some people uh, do exactly what you did and others kind of just cave in and give up the ghost and that creates a new opportunity. Now, when you go to, for example, in that scenario to buy a customer list, um, is there any kind of industry norm you could use to value that? Or, or was it just a pure negotiation and psychology game each time you were doing it? Well, that's, that's, that's a, um, it, it depends on, on what we're buying. So in certain situations, uh, I can see uh, a, a value depending on the type of contract they've, the customer's got or the type of customers they've got. Um, but a lot of time there isn't in our industry, there's not a lot of value in these customer bases. So we, we put a sort of a, we, we, we try and go in at the lowest possible amount and, and then, and then buy the, you know, buy the, um, acquire the list and acquire the customer base and just the record Graham we've actually done some fantastic acquisitions and we've also made a lot of mistakes um a, a lot you know along the line where you buy a customer base you think it's gonna be fantastic and it turns out to be um just an overpriced yellow pages yeah indeed uh, we've all been there and you buy this list or you have this email list and it turns out it's all just complete junk but but you know i mean i'm sure one of the trends you've seen especially as we bring things up to date is is the cost of customer acquisition has been going up and up and up. And you, you actually need to engineer some quite decent margins to, to cover the cost of effectively buying a new customer. That, that's correct. So when we look, um, you're absolutely correct. So the cost of acquisition is either us, A, having a sales team, or B, us having a marketing-based model using Google AdWords. Either way we do it, it is very, very expensive. Uh, if you buy in that customer, then uh, often that is a much cheaper way of actually 
you know, that of going through that customer acquisition. What we do, Graham, is we actually analyze out the lifetime value of a client and um, and and each each sector can be very, very different. So we, we've, for example, looked at the lifetime value of a client when it comes to financing of cars for in the retail sector, which is for an individual. And that lifetime value of a client is much, much lower than if we're dealing with a finance director of a company that has a fleet of vehicles. So that's one of the measures that we will use. Um, so when we, we we think about the customer acquisition costs, and what a lot of people do in business is they say, you know, it doesn't make sense to acquire, it costs too much to acquire the customer. But when you actually start building in the lifetime value of that, it can be a totally different conversation. Yeah, and I was amazed looking at your website that the, the range of things for which leasing is now available even things like paying VAT and corporation tax so I'd imagine there's quite a lot of cross-selling opportunities once you've got a client on board who likes and trusts you there, there is there is Graham there is there is a lot of cross-selling opportunities available but interestingly um, one of the key focuses today is on how to grow a business and how to sell it and we have to be very careful here because we built a company called Wise Leasing. We sold part of it in 2006 and we sold part of it in 2009. The When we sold in 2009, we were still one of the largest respected IT leasing brokers and we sold to a German bank that's focusing on just IT finance. <clears throat> and for them, it was a perfect acquisition. We were a perfect acquisition target. We now, because we sell and deal in a whole range of different uh, leasing products, so as an example, we can do VAT funding or we can do car finance or uh, office an office fit-out or dental chairs or scaffolding poles, actually the business you, it does not become that valuable because we're just a, a, a general finance company. So you can get more value when you are very much focused on a, a, a sector. So one of the ways we get around this, this Graham, is we set up, we call them like micro websites or, or business silos. So as an example, we have vatloans.co.uk, we have scaffoldfinance.co.uk, um, and we have a, a range of other websites, you know, Fish Fryer Finance or... Um, and, and what we do of, of, of um, fit out finance uh uh, um, so uh, .co.uk. So these are sort of micro websites and micro brands that we built within West One. And the logic being is that if somebody said, well, I'm interested in your VAT business, we have a ring-fenced division that we could package up and sell. Um, but the person who would be interested in buying the VAT finance business might not be interested, as an example, Graham, in buying the scaffold finance business. Okay, that, no, that's, that's quite a smart strategy. And, and I think, the, yeah, the specialist always gets paid more than the generalist. So I can see where you know, that, that, that strategy would come from. Um, so as you're growing you know, what's now called West One, um, what are you finding today in the 2020s are the kind of biggest limiting factors on, on growth? Um, in our sector, I think um, <clears throat> we have two competitors. Uh, competitor number one, <clears throat> I'll say, is cash. Um, since COVID has actually been around, the UK, as we all know, has been flooded with bounce-back loans and Seabills loans. 
And the business took a major downturn, along with most other companies in the UK during that that period. And part of that reason is there's just too much cash around. So people had access to cheap funding. And the second key uh, competitor we have is we, we call it apathy, which is people would prefer to do nothing than do something. And especially at the moment, um, Graham, with the... Um, the Ukraine war, and now the talk is about inflation. Uh, a lot of business people get nervous, uh, and they, they correctly so make a decision not to invest and not to grow. And their logic is, well, let's just keep on doing the day job, and we'll worry about the, the growth of the business in a few years' time. In these circumstances, normally the three things that get up uh, get cut out are investments, uh, training, and marketing. And, and we're at the top of the list. So um, it's, it's very quickly, it's very easy to see a change in, in the marketplace. So that's the key challenge we have at the moment is that people, I think, are being very sensible, business leaders are being very sensible, and they're holding back on certain investments. Well, yeah, I, I hear what you say about being sensible. But if you look at the macro picture, and I think, frankly, I'd go back 20 years on this, one of the real issues in, in UK PLC has been persistent underinvestment by businesses. And you know, we have very poor, I mean, our productivity is worse than the French, for God's sake. Um, exactly. You know, so so something's got to change. Now, Rishi Sunak's trying his super deductions and things like that. Um, I mean, do you think there's just too much uncertainty around for business owners to make these investment decisions? Or can we somehow you know, get ahead of the curve here, just re-energize British business. Well, that's, 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 a, that's a good point. If you look at the super deduction tax, a lot of people we speak to, a lot of finance directors still don't even know what it is. And, they, uh, you know, they don't even know that the recovery loan, as an example, expires at the end of June 2022. Um, I think it all comes down to individuals. It all comes down to uh, the businesses that people are, are in. And I think it's also very easy, uh, Graham, for us to focus on on the issues, the challenges, the negativity. There are tens of thousands of very positive, intelligent, capable business people that have absolutely incredible businesses that are still out there looking to, 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 to grow their business. And they will use, you know, they will use funding of some description to, to grow that. And I think that's what the, the, we should be very proud in England, or sorry, I mean the UK, that we've got people of that sort of nature. So I think a lot of it comes down to the individual, the in, or, or the board of directors or the shareholders in a business as to what they want to do. And the other key thing is as one industry contracts and fails others are going to grow and we've seen that at the moment we, one of the key challenges we have or the key challenge we have is finding good quality employees and and it's, it's simple mathematics for the first time in 40 years there are more jobs on offer in the uk than there are people available to fill those positions Absolutely. It's, a, it's astonishing. I think I read recently there's 1.8 million unfilled vacancies. Um, and, and yeah, part of it is is low unemployment. Part of it is people that are kind of what they call the great resignation using uh, the pandemic as a chance to step away from economic activity. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, banks, for example, have a reputation for only lending money to people who don't need it. Is, is, there, a, mm -hmm. is there a bit more flexibility available in the leasing world? And if so, you know, any business owners that are, are listening to us, what what should they do to, to make themselves as attractive as possible to a leasing company? Yeah, Graham, what you just said is so true. The high street banks are 
often very negative about lending money and the money they lend to is the people who don't need it. But you then have a lot of what we call challenger banks, which are uh, funders that are out there that have got, um, that are often VC backed and or pension scheme backed, and they have a lot of money to, to lend. So one of the key challenges these banks have in the leasing world is they, they, they need to find good quality customers to lend money to. So the great thing is at the moment, and this is what's very, very different to going back to the recession of um, eight is that in the, the, the all the banks contracted they stopped lending we have a position now where all lots of leasing companies are lending and the key challenge they have is they're not lending enough money so if if we if if somebody is looking or if a company is looking to lease uh, or, or, to, or to borrow money, there is a lot of liquidity out there in the market, uh, especially in the UK SME space to, to fund uh, you know, a whole range of different, um, it doesn't matter if it's assets or, or working capital or other bits and pieces. You take the likes of uh, Funding Circle, who, you know, is, they've only been around, I think, circa 10 years, um, and look at how they've stolen so much of the UK lending space compared to, to the, the major high street banks, you know, the names which we'd, we'd recognise. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think the whole financial world is going through actually kind of an uh, almost a, a, an under the radar revolution at the moment. And, and yeah, I think there's things like crypto and decentralised finance creeping in there as well. So there's a lot of change going on in the financial world. So um, as you sit here now looking at, you know, planning out your business over the next few years, what sort of changes do you think you're going to need to make to really kind of stay ahead of the curve? Um, it, it's interesting you say that because even though I've been in this industry for many, many years, every single year I'm seeing major changes. So as an example, we are, we are still making major changes in the products that we're actually selling as a company. Um, so let me give you an example. So for six years now, we've been involved in car finance and car finance. You can split between the selling a car, financing a car to a consumer or financing a car to a company. Um, and it's actually it's, it's quite a competitive market, but it's taken us many years for us to sort of find our niche in that market. So we found our niche and now we've done all the we've done the correct business planning. We've uh, and we're now on the hunt for a number of individuals all located throughout the UK to help us grow this division. So whereas historically the business of, as an example, IT leasing and software leasing, it still is around. It's still a big business, but as we all know, a lot of software leasing has moved. A lot of software is now paid for by subscription, and a lot of companies, like ours, an example, does not have a file server internally in their offices. We're using a data center, so there's there's the the actual market for leasing into into the IT and software space is is much smaller than what it was many years ago. So we as a company have searched out for other areas. Um, so as an example, we've moved into dental finance. Um, we've moved into scaffolding finance. We've moved into the financing of, of secondhand vehicles for companies. And these are things we've, we, we have no choice, Graham. We either change the market move with the times or, or we just wither and die on the vine okay well you mentioned earlier on that as, as time goes on exit strategies start to become uh, uh, higher up the agenda so where at this stage is is the uh, potential for an exit in your in your uh, thoughts as you look ahead to the coming years well, when I was 40, the plan was always to retire and not work anymore, Graham. But um, 
as I get older, my it, a lot of it, the exit strategy is, is round to my personal circumstances. Uh, my personal circumstances, I've uh, got a lovely wife and three three children, uh, two of which are now at university. So if you'd have said five, six, ten years ago, probably my exit strategy would be I get to 55, 60 or 65 and then sell the company. So the strategy was always to to build, develop, grow, keep the business clean and tidy to sell it to a third party. Now the exit strategies can be potentially dif- different. So um, the exit strategy could be, as an example, to hand it down to the children. But one thing I've, I've learned, and maybe I actually only learned this in my 50s, is that Actually, I really, really, well, not, I've, I've always enjoyed what I do, but now I really enjoy what I do. And as I'm getting older, I don't want to stop what I'm doing. And so the thought of me retiring is just, you know, it's just not on the agenda. It's not something that I want to do because part of it is I don't really treat work as work. I, I, I treat it as my hobby, as a, as, as a pleasure. And so realistically, uh, Graham, at the moment, if you said, where is my the thought process on on exit it would be to either pass the day-to-day running down to either a family member or a member of my existing team for me to close you know not work as many days per week um but but have a you know like an income in you know for a, for a number of years going forward yeah no it's interesting isn't it because uh, i mean I, I meet a lot of retired business owners down here who are spending their days on the golf course and frankly that most of them are bored out of their skull you know and um you know you, you, you i always say it's fine to retire from a business but you've got to have something to retire to which could be an all-embracing hobby, a charity, a church thing whatever there's got to be something that you're going to get out of bed in the morning for Absolutely, absolutely, and I think that, it, I, and, and luckily, a lot of people do have something they want to get out of bed for. Um, I still get in, get out of bed for and, and get enjoyment out of um, you know, financing, doing financing for companies and helping companies. And, and basically, if you put it into very basic terms, Graham, doing a deal, doing a uh, doing a lease deal, it doesn't matter if it's a small a deal or a large deal it gives me a, a you know a personally a lot of pleasure and also the pleasure is in the the, the, the challenging things it's, it's in working out how to make an acquisition when somebody doesn't want to sell or how do you structure an acquisition to to pay the lowest amount of money possible up front but by making sure that the the seller's um, requests are, are met as well, and and that that uh, problem solving um, is is happening on a week by week basis, which is a pleasure. It's not a, you know it's a challenge, but it's a pleasure, and I think that when a lot of uh, highly energized or successful business people do look to retire, I think they do find it challenging that they they lose that. No, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. But so obviously you've done an awful lot in your career so far, Jeremy. Um, We've got a lot of business owners listening to us who either want to grow or sell their business. So uh, I can't let you go without asking you to try and at least pick out three key lessons you would pass on to them from your own experience. Okay, let's let's break this Let's let's break break this down. If 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 you said key lessons to growth and then key lessons to uh, selling a business, so if we talk about the three key lessons with regards to growth, um, I think you can summarise it up as one, urgency; secondly, outstanding customer service; and thirdly, data. Just to expand on that a little bit. 
When I talk about urgency, I'm talking about taking action today to grow your business. And it's in very simple terms, if you're not moving your business forward, you are going backwards. Outstanding customer service. Um, I, along with probably every other person in the United Kingdom, has seen a deterioration in customer service since COVID has impacted. Um, and if you, as a business owner, can focus on offering outstanding customer service, that is is so, so, so important. We won a customer the other day, and he says all he wanted for us was to have to somebody to answer the phone when he rings. And that is how poor customer service has actually got. Ah. Thirdly, data. People disrespect and do not understand the importance of data. So for many, and I, I do respect actually for many business people that are listening to this this podcast, data is actually irrelevant. However, if you're in a company where data can be relevant, make sure it is current, it's clean, it's clean data, and it's appropriate because that is where the value of your business is. Moving on, Graham, to the the second piece of your part of the question with regards to selling a company. The point number one is. Focus on the exit plan before you write the building, the, the business plan. Secondly, always be ready to sell at 24 hours notice. And thirdly, branding. So when we're taught in business to, to write a business plan, and I totally agree with the logic there, but you should always write an exit plan when you start a company. And, and that exit plan is when you're going to sell, how you're going to sell, and who you're going to sell to. Secondly, if you think of yourself as a, a fireman waiting there by the fire truck uh, for uh, uh, to get that call to go and, 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 and put out a fire, you have got to be the same in business. You have got to be ready at 24 hours notice to sell your business. So I encourage every business owner today to sit back, look at their business and say, what would they need to do today to put it into a position where you could sell it quickly? And thirdly, branding. You, you've got to have a good brand. You've got to have a, an amazing website. You've got to have a good logo. Your business has got to be clean and tidy. And I'm not just making reference to when you physically see the offices that you've got fresh paint on the wall, but just the business is just organized. It's structured well. You've got great systems in place and you've got great documentation. Um, I'm fortunate to know the gentleman that set up a company called Dreams, uh, and he is a well-known and uh, highly successful entrepreneur who sold the, the business. But what an amazing brand he had for that business! It's my favourite brand, Dreams PLC, and and he's and and um, the the domain name Dreams.com, absolutely fantastic. The, the way the the intelligence that went into building a business that actually sells beds. So. I would say with regards to selling the business is make sure the branding is right. And if it means you changing your logo now or changing name now, go ahead and do it and get yourself ready for the time that you do want to exit. Awesome. So we got double bubble there. We got three of the best for growing and three of the best for selling. So, well, all I can say is, Jeremy, thanks so much for what you've shared with us today and, and all the best in, in your continuing uh, efforts with your existing business. Thanks very much. Thank you, Graham. It's been a pleasure to join this afternoon and I wish all this as well. Thank you very much. Thank you. And join me again soon for another episode of Grow My Business or Sell It. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to suggest topics for future episodes, appear as a guest on the show 
or invite me onto your podcast, you can get me on graham at grahamrowan.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time on Grow My Business or Sell It.